Okay, so welcome. Uh, I'm Martin Knapp. I'm the co-director of LSE Health and Social Care, which is uh, hosting the event today. Um, my other co-director, Elis Mosiolos, uh, is a bit distracted with um, working in the Greek government uh, at the moment, so uh, he's on uh, leave at the moment. Uh, but you will see those of you that are not in the centre will soon work out. There are quite a few people here from the centre. We're quite a big group. Um, I think it's about 72 staff in the centre, uh, and I'm told from my colleagues that we've had over 100 different research projects since 2008, so we're quite an active uh, centre. Quite a number of those projects are in the area that we're going to focus on today, which is ageing, specifically ageing uh, and ageing society and some of the social policy implications. So in a moment I'm going to introduce the, the speakers, but let me first of all just um, set the scene and give you a bit of housekeeping. The scene setting is that we are a multidisciplinary group, so there are many, many disciplines represented within LSE Health and Social Care, and the work we do is generally um, built upon a multidisciplinary platform. So we're very keen to have good multidisciplinary discussion as well. So we hope that when we get to the discussion stage, there'll be lots of inputs from all over the place. We are particularly interested in the policy and practice implications that's a theme and emphasis probably in everything we do. So again, I hope in the discussion we can pick up on some of those consequences of the research or the potential consequences and uses of the research that you're going to hear about. Now what we'll do, we've got three <coughs> presenters and a discussant. So I'm going to ask each of the presenters to speak for no more than 20 minutes. Um, and I will, I will frantically wave in a very public way when they get to about 19 and a half and don't put nothing in the stop. Uh, so we can try and keep that. And then we'll have a quick sort of five minutes or so for any quick questions, quick clarificatory points, quick comments, but not a full discussion then. And then at the end of the three, uh, Mike Murphy is going to give us a brief sort of set of comments reflecting across the three, five, five minutes or so. And then, if we all keep to time, then we'll have time for a more general discussion. Okay, so I hope that's fine. We're not expecting any tests of any uh, fire alarms, so any fire alarm that goes off is a real one. Uh, you can see the emergency exits. Um, if you haven't already done so, um, and you don't want to be socially embarrassed, you might want to switch your phone off now. Um, uh, I did go to a meeting recently where these, the chair announced that he was going to fine Five pounds. Uh, anybody whose phone went off will be fined five pounds. So uh, I'm not going to, even at the LSE, we're not going to do that, but uh, be good to turn it off. Okay? All right, now one or two people just getting in. So um, the three presenters. First one, uh, Tiziana Leone, is going to present on behalf of herself and Philip Hessel on the effect of social participation on the subjective and objective health status of the over 50s, evidence from SHARE, which Many of you will know about but Tixi, I will tell us more. So, over to you. Thank you very much, Martin. Um, as Martin said, this is, um, this is actually part of one of the projects of LSE Health. Myself, um, basically, myself and Philip work on an EC funded for DG employment project, and among other things, we did this work. So, we would like to acknowledge our funders. Um, I mean, why the interest? Obvious reasons aside, uh, you might know that 2012 is the EU year, EU, um, year of active ageing. So there are lots of initiatives at um, EU level, mainly um, 
which the Commission is, is putting forward on trying to do more research in this field. And they see this in three main components, which are continue to work, um, so stay in employment, stay healthy longer. And the third one, which is the one specifically which is in, more interesting for the study that we've conducted, engage in society such as in volunteering or in uh, membership. <coughs> What's the evidence so far? Um, I'm sure that you know much better than I do that there are clear effects of um, engagement, social networks, in a broader sense. And I mean, throughout this, I might, I might kind of mix up some of the terms in terms of social engagement, social networks, and social ties. But I will try to clear, clarify as much as possible what the actual study focused on. But in general, the literature on social networks in general <coughs> is quite um, clear on the positive effects of social networks on health and mortality in general. And here you've got just a short list of the key ones. More spe specifically, on the social participation, which is just one of the specific characteristics of social networks, why it is important to invest on, on uh, social activities and participation? Well, usually social activities go down much more slowly than employment at older ages. So the benefits of social engagement might actually outlast those of employment. So in the end, you could actually have a much more effective input on, on level of health. More specifically, looking at share, which is the data which we are more interested um, on, some work by Colli et al. showed how, in general, social activities are very related to general on social capital and social network, and they're strongly associated um, with each other in their positive effect on health. That's why sometimes you can actually look at social engagement as almost as one of the proxies of, of, of social network. Uh, in general, volunteering, and that's from the literature, uh, volunteering and social participation can enhance social network and indirectly have a, um, a positive impact on health. So what's missing, and it was quite surprising actually for an aging beginner like me, to see that after all this wealth of, of um, research, and not just on social network in general, but specifically on the data on share, which has been exploited um, I would say almost to death. So what's actually missing and what can we say that is new on the literature that is already out there that has not been said so far? Well, it seems that there isn't really much being said on the um, self-selection effect of um, health and social network. Usually when you look at mainly the studies on shared in the last uh, four or five years, you see that the relationship is considered at one level only in one direction. And it's obvious that if you are healthy, you're much more likely to engage in social activities and vice versa. So that's a kind of a crucial point of, this, of the rationale behind this study. Also, we thought that it was rather important to look at both objective and subjective health, because mainly the studies that we've looked at, they looked at subjective rather than objective in terms of looking at the social participation effect. The other thing which we are um, particularly keen to explore is the comparative side, so the effect of country as well as the effect of neighborhoods in the form of, of so as a, as a proxy of, of community, because you would expect that social engagement could have actually um, come from a social diffusion effect in the area. So having said that, what's the aim of, of this study? Well, the aim is the to highlight the impact that social activities have on health of older individuals, controlling for endogeneity, so controlling for that self-selection, 
self-selection um, effect. This is using shared data from 13 European countries. The data, uh, for um, those of you who might not know yet, is um, basically loosely based on the ELSA study in, uh, of the UK. There has been already three waves of, uh, of data. Before this study, we used only the first two waves because the third wave is a completely different um, type of data. Um, in the end, we looked at almost um, 40,000 observations. The data um, considers also data from Israel, but we only looked at European um, data, so we restricted to uh, 13 countries. Um, in terms of the um, measures of health that we've used for this study, for the subjective health, for the objective health, we used um, grip strength because it was a good predictor of objective health across countries and is usually considered to be one of the best objective in terms of obje objective measures when it's considered across comparative analysis, um, mainly because it accounts basically is standardized by weight and age as well. In terms of subjective health, we um, thought um, there are two measures of, of health, I'm not gonna go in, of subjective health, I'm not going to go into the details, uh, but to simplify this and to avoid cultural references in terms of how the scale might work across countries, we just dichotomized it into two, one excellent to good and fair to poor. Um, in general, possibly there is some research, although I think that it's probably not as strong as it, as it might be, that shows that the elderly are much more serene in their reporting of, of self-reported health compared to younger people, so they might have a more objective view of their self-reported um, health. But, um, look, as I said, I mean, I've only found a few studies on this. In terms of the framework for um, our analysis, it is loosely based on uh, the work by Colley and also it's probably determined by the structure of the data that we get with, with SHARE. Um, we haven't got as such, uh, when I first got into this um, topic, I mean my main interest in general is the effect of the networks, social networks on health in general. You can't really work on social networks with um, data, I'm sorry, with um, SHARE. Um, but um, you could look at various dimensions of the social network which are um, similarly important. So I think that there are three basic dimensions that you could um, look at in this case. One is the formal um, ties, which are activities done in the last month, a membership. We've looked at this with the principal component analysis because we were not interested in specific activities, but we were in interested in the intensity of the um, level of engagement in activities. Informal ties, this is mainly support given outside and support given to family. And then family ties determined by union status, number of children, number of grandchildren, and household size. So just to give you an idea, sorry, probably is a bit small, but just to give you an idea of the level of engagement in Europe, there is a high heterogeneity. Uh, probably help outside the household is the one who's got um, the highest frequencies, followed by uh, well, provide help to the families and uh, sports and social club. But you can see across countries there is a high diversity. Hence, there is a really important case for controlling for the country um, variations. 
So what did we do in the um, modeling? We considered three outcomes, two the subjective and objective health, and the third one is the social engagement, which we considered in the form of um, activity score, so the principal component um, index that we calculated. The type of modeling that we did was to try and consider, first of all, the single equations, trying to highlight the effect of, of each factor, then to add to that the fact, um, the extra component of um, effects at neighborhood and um, country level, so the multi-level modeling added on to that. And finally, once we got these models, we considered the endogenous effect, where we looked at what's really the, um, whether the impact of social engagement on health changes once you actually account for the um, self-selection um, um, self-selection effect. What results did we get? Um, I mean, there are pages and pages of tables, but I thought we, I would just try to summarize quickly the, the key points on the um, on the, this is first the single equation modeling, and then I will show you briefly what we got with the endogenous um, models. Well, first of all, um, it's obviously strong impact of activities on um, objective and subjective health, regardless of what you control for. By, by the same token, the health factor has got um, positive impacts on, on activity score. If we look at the first three, which we could probably summarize as the social um, capital, they're all positive apart from employment on activity score, which could be kind of uh, counterintuitive. Um, the, the, the interesting thing is probably the comparison between the active engagement with the activities within the family and outside, looking after grandchildren and providing help outside, which do seem to have a positive impact on all outcomes. Whereas when you look at the actual family ties, you do have either a non-significant or negative or very mildly uh, positive um, impact on, uh, on, the, on the outcomes. So it seems um, to me that um, being engaged anyway is a kind of, 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 of visual circle where you do get any, a positive impact. What I think is, is um, important to highlight in the, in the last column as well, which I will go back at the end in the conclusion, is that income education, they are positively um, associated to um, activity score. I think this is an important um, point when you look at the social engagement that any policies that you actually um, push forward, because you would have that those who are usually engaged in social activities and membership, they are more likely to be from middle classes or upper classes or wealthier in general. So that's something that needs to be taken account into account when you look at these kind of policies. Um, regardless of that, when you control for anything else, the, um, the impact still remains um, positive. And lastly, and not least important, um, community and country effect are significant, meaning that there is a considerable variation within countries in terms of how um, these activities are taken, but also in how they impact on the different coefficients. Um, so then we moved on onto the um, endogenous effects accounting for um, the self-selection uh, effects in the, in the modeling. I think this is probably 
obvious, but still I thought that it would need it to be proved, that when you account for the endogeneity, still, there is still a positive effect of social engagement on uh, both um, um, objective and subjective um, measures. We can't actually compare the two in terms of the effect that they have on the subjective compared to the objective because of the type of modeling that we used. One is continuous versus logistic. Um, but still, um, it's, it's a very significant uh, positive effect. Um, always bear in mind that health has got uh, positive impacts on, on social activities. Um, the thing that I think is probably, is probably interesting, and I don't know whether I want to put this forward as a policy advice, is that social activities appear to have a stronger impact, or anyway, a more positive impact on health than um, social and family ties, such as having children and grandchildren. So I don't know whether having a family in this case, but anyway, that, that would need to be more understood in detail. Um, so what, what can be the implication as such? Well, I mean, probably we just demonstrated again the need to account for the um, self-selection uh, effect. The other thing is um, we could think of um, the fact that in progressively nuclearized on so smaller family size and fertility decline um, societies, one of the things to probably look at is the social engagement component in terms of how um, we want to look at active and healthy aging. Um, but we still need to consider, and that's the point that what was looking at before, uh, the socioeconomic differentials within the social engagement. And what we need to look at more in detail is who's doing what, because within the activities as well, there is a variation of what kind of activities might have a different effect and um, what kind of stigma some of the activities, such as looking after uh, one of your family member versus being the um, member of a political party might actually, um, might actually have. So that, that's, that's one variation that needs to, rather than having a blanket social engagement in, 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 in activities type of, of, of perspective. So from the European perspective, well, I mean, we should always remember that these are limited data. We've looked at, in general, just at variables that have said what kind of activities have you done in the last month, and we've summarized and shrunk them as much as possible. So um, we need to consider that. But beyond this, I think that in terms of, of the policy uh, implication at um, European level, we need to still account for national, cultural, institutional settings, which play very important roles as both the modeling and even the descriptive analysis uh, will tell you. Um, the European Union is spending a lot of money on this in the next couple of years in terms of, of research and also um, initiatives and, and, uh, and um, workshop and so on and so forth. So probably the, the thing to do is probably to go on our country-specific initiative, um, initiatives, which I haven't seen as much until now uh, have actually worked, so looking more at um, study cases on what's actually going on within countries and uh, go beyond volunteerism, which could be um, tailor-made um, to attract the right groups of older population. The other thing which I think is kind of fundamental is how we're going to approach this um, social engagement um, push um, in terms of 
um, trying to, and, and it goes back properly to who's doing what and what kind of social groups we are really looking at. Um, because to actually pressurize people, just telling them this is good for you, might not actually be the way forward, and a more social diffusion um, type of, of approach would be more uh, appropriate. And uh, well, actually, be very, um, very glad to hear from. Uh, be, I will look forward to hear what you think about this and what could be done. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Tiziana. That was great. <laughs> and we've got time in hand, so let's uh, have some comments or questions. You just say who you are. And don't be shy. Okay. Can you just say who you are? I'm Adelina Comas-Herrera from PSSLU. Uh, I think uh, mental health is a very important so it's, it's the way in which social participation is impacted very heavily in health, but I suppose shared maybe you can have measures that, that we're going to work for this. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at Philip here, I think there is some uh, measure of depression. There is some measure of depression. Yeah, I mean, we did start looking at it at the beginning when we were choosing the, the outcomes, but I think we thought to simplify it because otherwise it would have been another kind of worms, and I think you would need to do a completely separate analysis on that. Not quite sure about the data um, quality no, either. That's issue. Yeah, but you're absolutely right, yeah. Okay. Um, David Hogarth from Westminster Local Involvement Network. We had two uh, sessions. Um, to entice older, lure older people into uh, volunteering. One of them was attended by one person, and the other was attended by none. Did I do any advice? <laughs> oh, well. I thought you, uh, you would be able to tell us, actually, because I'm, I'm a demographer. <laughs> um, we can open it up to other people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. It's just going to be a lure, yes, hello. <laughs> No, I mean, I think your point is, is, is particularly crucial, and that's the, the going back to what we could actually do with those data. I think it would be really important to have longitudinal data, and, and often, I mean, we, that's why I think the, the point of, of not accounting for the endogeneity is because people work usually with cross-sectional data. You really need longitudinal data to look at how changes 
actually have an, an, an impact. Also, we did not have any information on friends and connectivity, informal ties, which would have been fundamental, and I agree with you. So, I mean, in a sense, it's almost like a call for, for adding more information if they really want to go ahead with this um, active aging. But my point is actually the opposite, is that probably luring is not going to it's not going to work. It's this kind of social diffusion, having friends who are going to tell you, who are going to engage you with, because you're going to go to activities where you know somebody, where you, where you actually know that you are in a friendly place, I guess. Okay, there's a point here, and then we'll come to it. Yep. Can I make um, two points? We have an example here this afternoon um, of how social participation can be affected, not just by health. Um, I'm an aged one, and I can't hear what the um, questions are, because this room is looped and there's no microphone. So the ability to be involved socially, and I find this all the time, is whether you can hear properly um, what is being said or not. And I do think you need to look at, in an aging society, deterioration of hearing separate from um, health alone. The second point I want to make is that you mentioned the political parties. Again, I speak from um, experience in my earlier life, but the one, um, it is generally accepted, I think, that um, um, class, in the political sense, is associated with education. And there was a time when a membership of a trade union provided a whole network of social activity which carried on um, after the end of employment. Now, in the United Kingdom, uh, trade union participation has um, heavily declined in this generation. It's different between the public sector and the private sector, but I don't know whether it's the same in Europe. But to the extent that people of, um, shall we say, um, working class um, participate, um, irrespective of education, it's only really difference across the countries between the extent to which trade unions are still a feature of the economy. With the data we worked on, um, I wouldn't be able to answer that question. I don't know whether anyone else knows about that. Does anyone want to answer that question particularly? First of all, let's want to pick up on that. Okay, I, mean, I think it sounds to me like one of those very quite interesting hypotheses mm, yeah. that it may not be possible to address with these data, but it seems to be quite an interesting, I mean, it's sort of the, the organised structuring of social participation to some extent, which has been changing through wider I mean, I can, I, I can definitely say that it's definitely the case in Italy, but I wouldn't know across other um, countries in, in Europe. But I agree, it's definitely an interesting point. Yeah. Okay, so we've got one here. We've got one, two, three, then we'll go to service. Yeah, that's the, 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 the that's the point of the, of, the, of the study basically. Is by doing <laughs> no, no, so it's okay. And I, I mean, I might have used too much jargon anyway. Um, but it's it's basically what we wanted to prove with with the final model that when you account for that effect, that healthier people are more likely to be in a, in an activity, we still get that activities have a, a positive effect on health. So social activities are 
good anyway, regardless. The point is that these data do not tell us when they started, um, for how long they've been there, what kind of engagement they've done as well. They're very, very limited. So, I mean, it's just really calling for more information if they really want to invest in this kind of, uh, of things. So, I mean, it's, it's mainly informative. Um, so far, that's all we can say. Okay, there's one there. Yes. Um, my name is Cynthia White. I hope the gentleman over there can hear me. Um, I chair the City London Hackney Old Reference Group, and we have over 800 members. And so much of what you have already presented has resonance, but so many things that you haven't may well be in your study, but I'd like to draw attention to two or three that seem significant to us. We hold regular open meetings, and we're fascinated by the differential levels of attendance, um, so much so that we had one meeting packed out. The issue was personalization in uh, adult social care. I hope most people first explain what that is. And within that, the safeguarding issues of the Rose. Town Hall was packed out with older people for that. We had one on lunch clubs about 10 days ago, um, which are being reviewed, and I'd like to be significantly reorganized. All the top brass came because they wanted to hear what the older people said, and about six people turned up when it started and they filtered in and we got about 35 by the end, the lowest we've ever had. So what are the motivation factors? And I'd like to suggest, sorry this comes from a sociological perspective too, um, that stratification by attitudes is becoming increasingly important, more so than stratification by gender uh, or age. What people are doing, in my experience, is looking at a group of people, what they do, and saying, what's in it for me? And what's in it for me varies hugely, depending on the stage of life you're at, the position of health that you're in, who you are already involved with or not. And your work uh, in relation to contacts with family, grandchildren, um, needs to be, I think, modified by the variables of access, because access to family now is a very, very important issue. I have a grandchild who I may never see because that child is in Australia and I can't travel there because I'm a carer for a, a very much older husband. And I know that there are many older people who are only in contact with family by telephone. And there is evidence, survey evidence, of the implications of that. Transport, access to transport. Are you engaged in activities? Often depends on whether there's a bus that's running near you, or whether there is another way in which you can access, could be health facilities, social activities, or volunteering. So there are many other variables, but I think the critical one is attitude. What is in it for me? How do I see myself? And I think according to your social position in terms of economic status alone, 
means that working class groups already are lagging far behind in their capacity to be involved at the same age as other um, more well-heeled groups. And we see those cultural differences, city, London, and Hackney. Um, but they are changing. Yes. Just a quick response. No, that's that's yeah. very interesting. I mean, one of the things I would be interested in, but I'm not going to ask now, is is in terms of, of whether there are any initiatives and incentives and going back to the luring um, and the elderly into um, services, whether incentives might might be a way. Okay. Okay. Just I mean, just the, there are some very 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 helpful points there, and some yeah. things left hanging, if you like. Actually, a number of questions. But come to your point. Just one, one, just one point. But I think what we should do is hang, keep those for the general discussion yeah. at the end, even though the next two presentations will be slightly different. So one last comment or question. No, I, I just wanted to raise um, totally non-controversial, non-political uh, issue, uh, and that's that um, pensioners, elderly people, and those who are involved in helping them uh, are totally frustrated you know, with the response of the politicians. Right? Because uh, when you look at the basic <coughs> state pension which elderly people are given, right, that's really a disgrace. And one cannot, one will think of you know, having <coughs> aging people or aging population a life with dignity. Right? It isn't. Right. In our own area, where we have our pensioners forum, 40, 50 people you know, come every month to attend the meetings. Right. But the entire funding you know, has been withdrawn by the local authority. We have even to charge 50 pence for a cup of tea and coffee. Right. So who will tell me that, that European you know, here are volunteering you know, will be uh, taken up by those people. We need to address those issues. There's another issue as well. Whereas just very quickly, if you can. Okay. That okay. no, that's fine. No, I don't want to stop you doing it, but just, just quickly make another point, and then we'll move. Can I say that? Okay. The other issue, sorry, a bit deaf. Right, okay. Uh, the, bit, bit, the, the other issue is that in London itself, right, nearly one-third of the people between age of 50 and 65, they're out of job. Right. They want to work. On the one hand, we are saying that uh, there is no retirement age. But as a matter of fact, about uh, uh, three quarter of a million elderly people aged between 50 to 45, between 50 and 65, they're out of work. They want to learn new skills, right? but there's no provision for them to learn new skills. Even if they've learned skills, the moment the employer sees, you know, their age, right, they're out of it. So I think these are the issues which need to be, along with other issues, need to be addressed. Okay, thank you very much for that. I think, again, these are things, and actually, the pensions issue may or may not come up in the next few presentations, but it's not a million miles away from what we're going to hear about. So what we'll do now, that was very, bang on the timing, Raphael Wittenberg is now with the uh, next presentation. Uh, Raphael works here in LSE Health and Social Care, also uh, well, he's wearing his LSE hat today, but he's also uh, based at Department of Health, but this is the LSE work we're going to talk about. Um, the presentation is, in is entitled The Economics and Fiscal Sustainability of Long-Term Care for Older People. Uh, and yes, you have slides. Yeah. So, get to, uh, is that the right? Oh, yes, sorry, I've got one on there. Yeah. 
Thank you very much, Martin. Um, if I'm not talking loud enough, please do, do signal and I'll try and speak louder. Um, so this presentation is about a number of economic issues uh, in long-term care for older people and, and specifically in the funding of long-term care older people. And I'm going to concentrate on, but not entirely on, the issues of the sustainability of the expenditure over the coming 20, 30 years. Uh, this work draws on a number of studies, uh, including the Mapping Aging Population Study, and I'd like to um, acknowledge the role of the UK research councils who funded this study. The study was directed by Professor Mike Murphy and was conducted in collaboration with a number of colleagues whose uh, contributions are acknowledged here. I'm going to talk very briefly about the policy context on the funding of long-term care, which I guess is fami very familiar, to move on to some key economic issues, uh, including the, the sustainability one, to talk about some of the drivers for demand, why is there a sustainability question, uh, to present some of the projections of future expenditure long-term care, which my colleagues and I have been making at the LSE, and uh, briefly some conclusions. A major part of the background, I think, to the policy discussions that have been taking place in this country for at least a decade and in many others is concern about the future costs of long-term care and how we're going as a society to meet them. The costs are expected to rise for a number of reasons that I've indicated here. It's long-term care, being personal service, is obviously very labour-intensive. So, so long as uh, earnings continue to rise in real terms, or start to rise, perhaps I should say, once more in real terms, uh, we would expect a very uh, labour-intensive service to have rising real unit costs, rising faster than inflation. There's a view that expectations may potentially rise with new cohorts of older people having higher expectations perhaps than earlier cohorts. There are of course increasing numbers of older people, partly due to improvements in, with reductions in mortality, improved uh, health, and partly because of the size of the post-war uh, baby boom generations which will be over the coming decades reaching late old age. And there's a lot of uncertainty about the demand, and I'll be coming on to that. And against this background, I think it's fair to say that the crux of the debate here and abroad has been who pays? How are the costs of long-term care shared between the individual and their family on the one hand, and public funds, the state on the other? The current position I'm sure you're all aware of is that whereas health care is free at the point of need throughout the United Kingdom, and that now includes nursing care and nursing homes. That is not true of personal care. Personal care is a means-tested uh, service, social services, except in Scotland, where it is also free, following the recommendations of a Royal Commission over a decade ago now. So against that background, we had, um, we've had a series of reviews. The previous government, as you know, issued a green paper and a white paper towards the end of their term of office and in the white paper proposed to make uh, care in effect free in the long run. The new government, uh, which took office just, well, just over a year ago, decided to set up a new commission, the Dilnock Commission. That is expected to report with recommendations next month on how 
to fund long-term care. And the government has indicated uh, uh, plans for a white paper at the end of this year and legislation uh, in, next, in around May next year. These are four economic issues that I plan to just comment on fairly briefly, I'm aware of the time. Um, first of all, the balance of risk. I think this is in a way very critical. For a person at age 65, some will have zero long-term care costs. As I say, some people will not go on to need long-term care in late old age. Others will certainly do so. And for example, colleagues at the University of Kent, part of PSSU, estimated that around one-third of women and one-sixth of men will spend the latter part of their life in a care home. And these costs can vary greatly. And my colleagues here, um, Jose Luis Fernandez and his colleagues, have estimated that almost 10%, around 1 in 11 older people, looking at it from age 65, is likely to have long lifetime expenditure Sorry. of over £100,000. <laughs> so, so this lifetime expenditure of £100,000 for about 1 in 11 older people. Normally, you'd expect the classic answer to this to be form of insurance. So that everyone pools their risk. Those who turn out to need lots of care get insurance benefits. Of course, those who turn out to need none have paid in a premium. Everyone's paid in a premium. But that doesn't, in effect, happen here. And in particular, it is not possible in this country, unlike others, to buy at the present time, it's not possible to buy private long-term care insurance. In other countries, the situation is, is different, and I'm just going to briefly refer to this. Uh, some countries, particularly, for example, Germany and Holland, have social insurance systems, so that people pay an additional, if you like, like an additional national insurance contribution during their working lives. If they then need long-term care in old age, it is free or, or substantially free at any rate. And other countries, including actually Scotland, in effect, have done the same, funding it from general taxation. At the other end of the charts, the United States and England towards the bottom of it, we have this safety net system. In effect, poorer people receive services on a means-tested basis. Richer people, those with savings above a limit, currently just over £23,000, do not. And in addition to this, whereas in the States you can actually buy long-term care insurance privately if you can afford it, as I've indicated in this country, at the present time, you cannot. But to move on to a second economic issue, is that of incentives and efficiency. An issue, I think, in many ways, has almost dogged discussion, really, about long-term care as well. There are always issues around about incentives to work and save with the means test. And it's certainly been said that the present system, with its absolute cut-off at around £23,000 is a disincentive for people to save above that level unless they can save well above it in effect. So there's certainly issues around here about incentives to save. There are issues around in long-term care also about the incentives to provide informal care for family and friends. In Germany, for example, which I mentioned earlier, people can get cash payments and use them to, in effect, to pay their family to provide care if, if they so wish. We don't have that, quite that type of incentive here. And in fact, on the whole, uh, people who have got close relatives willing and able to look after them actually tend to get less, lowest care packages than those who do not. 
There are also incentives uh, between different types of care, and the number of countries have experienced this difficulty. It is very easy to have a system whereby it's advantageous for the authorities or sometimes the individual to enter a care home before it's necessary. And the argument goes here that for homeowners, with the home taken into account as an asset, it's cheaper for a council for homeowners if a person enters a care home and they have to pay using their house than if they stay at home and the house is exempt, for example. And there are issues, of course, about the incentive to buy long-term care insurance in those countries where it exists. Much depends on how far the state system covers the costs. There are then, thirdly, issues of equity. First of all, redistribution from people with low care needs to those with high care needs. In an insurance-type regime, where the costs are covered either by the state or, or by private insurance, that is what in effect happens. Those people who turn out not to need much long-term care have in, in effect, through their premiums, contributed to the costs of those people who it eventually turns out do need the costly long-term care, long care. A second issue is redistribution from wealthier to poorer people. And this, for example, is where we see a big difference between social insurance or state as a form of state insurance and private insurance. Generally speaking, with a state-funded scheme, one would expect contributions to be linked with earnings or perhaps with income more generally. Of course, with private insurance, that's not the case. Premiums depend on the assessed risk of the individual, not on their, their income and earnings. So this is one a big difference between private and state insurance-based schemes. There may also be issues about linkages between responsibilities for informal care and what people receive. In some countries, for example, including France, I think also Germany, children have an obligation to pay for the, towards the costs of their parents' care. There's also said to be this sort of implicit arrangement uh, within families sometimes, the idea that the children provide care and, and some of that link that preserves inheritance. It hasn't been used up to buy formal care and then the inheritance is preserved. So you get these interesting sort of intergenerational, intergenerational issues uh, and issues then of equity between generations. Now I'm now going to turn to fiscal sustainability uh, and the projections which we have made which relate to this topic. But first I'm going to just show you briefly some projections made by the European Commission. They, every couple of years or so, they issue projections for public expenditure on those items of really social policy expenditure that are particularly age-related. And these are their, I think, their most recent projections for long-term care, for health care and for pensions. And I should say the first two actually relate to all age bands. The two interesting things we can see here, first of all, in, in absolute terms, as you might expect, the increase, the projected increase over to long period of over 50 years is greater for health care and for pensions than for long-term care, and starting from a much higher base. So those two in one, in an absolute sense, are more important. But... With long-term care, the projection is that the need to spend, on certain assumptions, the need to spend roughly doubles over that same 
year period, increasing faster than healthcare and faster than pensions. Why is this so? Principally because of the extent to which long-term care is concentrated on the oldest of the old group, particularly those over 80, increasingly I think over 85. So the sustainability issue is how is this to be funded if the costs of long-term care as well as health care as well as pensions are all going to take up a bigger proportion of national income and a bigger proportion of public expenditure? How is this to be funded and will it require extra taxation or can other elements of public expenditure be reduced in fact to make, make way for giving rising expenditure on care? These are some of the, the drivers, the reasons why long-term care expenditure is expected to rise so rapidly. Some of these I've mentioned, um, clearly falling mortality rates, rising life expectancies, one, and issues around the trends in disability. How healthy will our generation, future generations, be at the point at which they reach um, late old age? There are also issues about the about the future supply of informal care, principally by families. Issues around the wages defect of those providing the care. And as I've already mentioned about the expectations on quality of care from future cohorts of older people. But I'm going to concentrate in terms of our projections on the first two. In making these projections, I don't really have time to go into the methodology here, we've used uh, two linked models. One is a very detailed model of what happens to individuals, in particular their incomes and their savings over time, which is run by colleagues at the University of East Anglia. And the other is our model here, which is a different type of model, which produces more aggregate results. And we've used the two together in a way that I think we found very rewarding. In order to make any projections at all of the time, the future time profile, if you like, of expenditure on long-term care, we've had to make some initial assumptions for a sort of base or reference case. And our assumptions are really that we follow the official government projections for the numbers of older people by age, gender, and marital status. And we're going to assume to begin with also the disability rates at a given age remain constant. We're assuming also the unit costs rise in line with average earnings of about 2% a year, not now, but in the long run. And also at this point, the patterns of care, the eligibility criteria, the funding system, or the policy-related variables are unchanged. And we get, first of all, this projection. On those assumptions, we see... Um, public expenditure projected to rise from about 10 billion to coming on towards 28 billion over the 25-year period from 2007 to 2032. This is in constant prices, so this is nothing to do with inflation. This is just the pressures from rising numbers of older people, people in need, and the rising expected rise in the costs of an hour's home care. And similarly, also rising private expenditure. And in fact, private expenditure projected to rise even slightly faster. And this is on, on the base case. So I'm, we first of all, I'm going to present 
the sensitivity to assumptions about future mortality rates. That's to say, what's going to happen to life expectancy? The results I've presented relate to the official central assumption on mortality and life expectancy. The Office for National Statistics have also published a lower and a higher variant, and we've looked in this context the higher variant because the lower one does seem much less likely. And also to a much higher one um, prepared by Mike Murphy. And these are the results that we get. And you can see if I can concentrate on the bottom row of this uh, particularly relative to the national income in effect, gross domestic product, we had long-term care expenditure for older people rising from about 1.5% in 2007 to 2.7% under our initial projection, that's to say the central official population projection, to somewhat higher levels and reaching 3% under the very high life expectancy projection. So the point here is substantial rises even under relatively, perhaps slightly cautious, assumption about declining mortality rates, and rather higher if there are even better improvements in mortality. So now from what, uh, sorry, this is showing the similar material actually for public expenditure. And again, rising from about 0.9% of GDP to 1.65, 1.75, 1.85 under the three variants. So again, quite, quite a sort of funnel of doubt, I think the Royal Commission called it, opening up. Uh, and now I'm going to present the disability scenarios. This is work we did in collaboration with Carol Jagger and her colleagues, Universities of Newcastle and Leicester. As I said, our initial uh, base case, reference case, assumed that the rate of disability, the proportion of people disabled at a given age, would remain constant. An alternative which Carol Jagger has explored is that it's the proportion of people with a chronic illness that remains constant. The difference is that the, the former, our initial assumption, implicitly assumes that the prevalence of illness will decline, based, or that the disabling consequences, really, or duration of illness will decline because of the improving mortality. So as mortality improves, the question is what happens to disability and chronic illness rates? Arguably, our base case assumption is quite optimistic, though that is something on which there are very differing views. But if we do take the alternative assumption that Carol Jagger has suggested, again looking at the bottom row of this slide, we see again that instead of 2.7% of GDP projected for 2032, we see in this case slightly over 3%. So again we see that disability rates matter and mortality rates matter, and matter potentially quite considerably. So by way of conclusions, I've discussed very briefly, necessarily, sort of four interesting issues in the economics, economic issues really, relating to the funding of long-term care. One is issues of incentives. What effect would any changes in the system, for example, that uh, the Dill Not Commission may recommend next month, have on incentives to save, incentives to prefer one type of care over another, for example, and perhaps even incentives to buy long-term care insurance should it reappear in this country. I've talked briefly about some of the equity issues, which clearly involve value judgments and, and trade-offs between different
types of equity, whether we're interested mainly in equity between levels of need, equity uh, between different income groups, or perhaps also, as the Royal Commission mentioned, equity between people with different types of disabilities. We discussed briefly the balance of risk between public and private funding, and that in a way is the, the core issue. Who pays? Who carries the risk? If someone does turn out to have a care cost of over £100,000, if they're in this unlucky one in 11, is the state going to pay at some point, or is the individual, if wealthy enough, going to take that whole cost? And I think that's the crux of the, the issue, arguably. But it's against this background of the sustainability of public expenditures. And indeed, the Dilnock Commission were asked particularly to take account of affordability and sustainability of their recommendations. We see a very substantial underlying pressure for these costs to rise, even with the current funding system. Now, clearly, these issues require value judgments, issues for specialist commission and ultimately for government and parliament. But we feel that this debate should be informed by evidence and that's what we've been trying to do. Thank you. Thank you very much, Raphael. Uh, because the first speaker has been brilliant in timekeeping, I'm going to reward everybody with a cup of tea at the end of the session. Uh, so at five, five o'clock, not yet. Um, right, comments or questions? Please, yeah. uh, West Point was delayed. We know from recent press analysis, not least Southern Cross, that just under half the people in care homes fund their own care. What, what is known about the behaviour, needs, choices, uh, ability to pay of that group? And have you taken this into account in your projections? Because it seems fairly significant. And it's supposed to be growing. Yes, I mean, there's evidence that that group is growing from surveys done by Lang and Wieson in particular, and they produce uh, estimates annually of the numbers of people paying for their own care, care homes. It's certainly, they've certainly projected as growing. That's probably not surprising given that successive cohorts of older people have, have been more and more likely to be homeowners, and the home is taken into account. I think I'm right in saying that, that knowledge about the detailed knowledge about this group is fairly limited. There have been some surveys done by colleagues, principally the University of Kent, which have looked at self-funders as well as publicly funded groups, but I think they're not that recently. The analysis certainly takes them to account, and in particular the model that I referred to, the micro-simulation model uh, at the University of East Anglia here, but also the model that colleagues here, the dynamics micro-simulation model that colleagues here have uh, designed and are using, uh, looks at the self-funders as well in the sense that it is part of the base status on the income and savings of older people. And with that type of data, you can see how many of them you would expect, in effect, to be above the means test threshold and how many of them below it. And that's a key part of the, this modelling. Okay. Another comment or question? Uh, could I just ask you, uh, in terms of you're using in your model for projections, um, particularly marital status, could you say what um, you consider is the significance of marital status? And should this not now as a concept be expanded uh, to include the general notion of partnership as formal marriage declines? 
yes. I mean, I must say, I've, I've went very briefly over our methodology because of time constraints. I mean, actually, I've used marital status as a bit of a shorthand. It's actually, we've used the official projections, both of legal marital status and of cohabitation. So it's, it's actually not, it's more like partnership, really, that we've looked at, rather than strictly legal marital status. So, I mean, um, and yes to that part of your question. The reason it's in our model is in particular because of the link with informal care. That my colleague Linda Pickard has, has looked particularly, for example, at the balance of caring between spouses and children. And a very substantial amount of care for older people, as, as you know, is provided by spouses. So it seemed rather important to think about the marital status projections. And as you know, they, they show that a higher proportion of women in particular will have a surviving spouse in late old age as the life expectancy gap between men and women narrows. So it seemed very relevant to think about it in our modelling. And what is the relationship then with children in terms of their propensity to care? In this, in our base case, because this is an unknown, we have assumed that it wouldn't... We've assumed actually, really, that the proportion of older people receiving, with a particular level of need, receiving care from their children would be constant. This is something that we've also varied in some of the variant work that we've done. I haven't you know, time to present. My colleague Linda Pickard particularly has looked at that and has looked at issues around what proportion of older people are projected to have a surviving spouse in the future, and something I know Mike Murphy's also looked at, and what difference that would make to these projections. So it's something we've certainly been looking at, but haven't, you know, wasn't able to fit that into today's presentation. Francis Gregoire, I just wonder if you model took account of the um, policy of moving towards more home care, um, and also so is the delaying as long as possible entry to residential care uh, using telecare and all these sort of other devices. Um, is, is there anything in there that you may, some of these things could actually lower the costs in the, in the long run? I mean, yes and no. I mean, again, what we've done for our reference case is assumed an unchanged balance of care between, for example, formal and informal and between home-based and residential. But again, we've looked at scenarios where that was not the case and done other work. We've said, well, supposing there is no further expansion in care homes, for example, and all the future growth is in the home care side and see, trying to see how much difference that would make. Because it then depends on the relative unit costs of caring for people in different settings, which in turn depends on their characteristics. We haven't in our model uh, looked particularly telecare, but I mean, there are quite separate major studies going on at the moment, as, as you know, on telecare, in which PSSIU is involved. Yes, I can't, I can't resist just saying that a group of us were discussing at lunchtime uh, some work we're doing in the European projects, which is looking at you know, telecare of a kind, it's about e-inclusion and then trying to conjecture what the longer term implications will be. Um, and I can't tell you the answer because it's secret, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, within two weeks we will have some estimates of that. But I, mean, I think uh, there's also an evaluation on Kate Henderson, my colleague at the back there, uh, is particularly uh, busy working on, which is a big randomised trial of telecare uh, in three sites in England, and that will be reporting in the next few months as well. Okay, one more last question. I think in principle, yes, and we haven't produced a separate projection for them, and it's something we've 
we've thought about, but because the, the as you may know, the official uh, statistics for home-based care include home-based care provided to those in these sort of sheltered housing, extra care housing settings, and that is in the model. What we haven't got in our modelling is things like the housing benefit used to support people in those settings. So I suppose partially yes and partially no, depending on the source of funding. Okay, go on. one last quick question. I've got. I was just wondering whether the cost of care include all the administrative it, because in a number of cases we've got the fundable care currently is uh, by pensions, because people are switching to the pension personally. It is also by the NHS in terms of nursing care, and it is also by social services. And there's also the administrative cost of all these three areas. Are these included into your model? I mean, in principle, yes. What we've got under public expenditure is the totality of social care for older people as recorded in the official data, which includes all the assessment, care management, administrative costs in social services. We've then included those parts of health care that are particularly long-term, like the continuing health care funding for people in nursing homes, for example, and also community nursing, and I think the sources we're using ought to include at least part of those admin costs. We've then included also those aspects of disability benefits that are used to fund care. Actually, those would probably be without their admin costs, but they're not that high, actually, for that sector. Uh, in private expenditure, we've included whatever the individual is paying, either for buying care directly from a provider or from contributing user charges. So implicitly, as you say, they will be drawing on pension, on their state and occupational pensions and disability benefits. Yes. Good. Okay, I think we should move on. There were very helpful questions, actually, in clarifying and give you a chance to expand on the presentation. So uh, thank you very much, Raphael. Our, our third presentation is from my colleague, Rosalie Fernandez, work he's been doing with Julian Forder, another... Uh, colleague here at LSE and at Kent. Uh, the title of the presentation is The Impact of Budget Cuts on Social Care Services for Older People. And I'm sorry we have a topic which is relevant to today, but uh, there we go. Um, okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, Martin. Um, first thing I would like to do is to acknowledge my uh, co author, uh, Julian Forder who unfortunately for him cannot be with us today. He's, uh, he has to spend a few days in Florence with his, with his wife. Uh, that's not a comment on his wife, by the way. She's a lovely person. <laughs> um, I would like also to acknowledge the Department of Health, who's, um, who's funded uh, the, the building of this microsimulation model that um, Rafael was talking about before, the dynamic microsimulation model. And, um, this piece of work that I'm uh, going to talk about builds on or, or uses that microsimulation model. This piece of work was also supported by a grant from Age Concern, or Age UK as they are called now. So Rafael has already done half my job, really. He's talked about all the uh, key issues in funding uh, long-term care. He's explained the main characteristics of uh, the long-term care system here in England. So, uh, But I would nevertheless want to go back a little bit um, to um, the, the, the 90s, the reforms in the 90s, thinking in terms of um, 
you know, what changes were happened there and the implications that they have in terms of, um, you know, the distribution of public support nowadays. And I think it's, it's useful because um, some of the issues are similar and yet uh, with a different perspective. Um, in, in the 90s, following the, the, the reforms in, in the, uh, of community care in 1992-1993, um, what happened, and is illustrated in this graph, is that um, the, the philosophy of the system changed radically and, and moved from one which was about providing support to quite a lot of people to one which would in, you know, concentrate, target those resources uh, significantly on those with the highest levels of need. This is illustrated here, for example, where uh, we can see two curves, <laughs> one uh, showing the, the number of the volume of hours of home care that is pro was provided between 1993 and 2003, and you can see how those, those hours uh, increased significantly from around 350,000 hours per week here to uh, in excess of 550,000. In, within 10 years or 11 years, and yet the, the, the numbers of households, <coughs> these are all ages, but most, most of the recipients here would be older people. And yet the, the, the households, the number of the households that receive uh, services went down from 2.9 million to um, just uh, about 2 million households. So fewer people receiving services and yet more uh, services being, being uh, received. The, the strategy there was one of concentration to, in order to improve the efficiency of the system, to try to get better outcomes. Because <coughs> the idea is that you, you, you get better, better return if you concentrate, um, you, you target resources on those people who are going to benefit most from them. And so I think what is important is two things. It's one that, as a result of that, and this is a process that has carried on until, until nowadays, <laughs> Um, we've got a system which is uh, supporting relatively few people uh, because it concentrates those resources on those with very high needs um, in the expectation that that's going to uh, generate uh, better outcomes. Um, that has generated um, you know, lots of debate in terms of whether we're not, not missing out by concentrating resources on the, on the neediest in potential for um, prevention, etc. Um, and so, you, you know, we are, uh, we, we, in a sense, that, that background is now shifting because not only are we complaining about the fact that we might be uh, making a mistake in terms of over-concentrating resources on the neediest, but we're also in a situation where I, this process was, I guess what I'm saying is that this process was not really driven by, or mostly driven by a lack of resources. It was most, mostly about using best the resources that were available. Whereas nowadays, I think we're in a slightly different um, environment where really local authorities are complaining that they really haven't got the money to serve those people that they would want to. It's not, no longer an efficiency strategy, if you see what I mean. So you're talking about newsworthy you know, uh, topics. Um, you know, we are now seeing local authorities coming out saying, look, you know, be warned, we have to reduce our expenditure on social care services, and this is going to, as they say here, generate real pain. This is going to actually reduce levels of services for people who currently may be, um, may be entitled to, to services. Uh, we've got a situation nowadays where uh, the majority of councils are no longer providing uh, um, support for people with Probably most of you are, are aware of these facts groups, facts categories, levels of an, you know, bands of needs that entitle or do not entitle you to, to support. Well, there are four such bands, um, and 
most of the, of the councils nowadays are only providing services for the two top bands. So only about, I think it says here, about 22 councils in England out of the 148 are uh, funding um, services for people with moderate needs. Now, moderate needs sounds like, well, you know, moderate need. But actually, when you look at the definition of what is a moderate need, you'll see that these are people who are failing, you know, they've got an inability to carry out several personal care or domestic routines. So the ADLs, what we call the ADLs, activities of daily living. So potentially these are people who, well, probably won't be able to wash themselves, might not be able to feed themselves. I, and, you know, these are the moderate needs. Substantial and critical, these are the people who left alone who basically have a very serious uh, uh, thing happen to them. So this is the system where we're now, really. The vast majority of local authorities are providing services here and above to people with substantial and critical need. And yet, local authorities are saying, look, you know, we, we have to cut services. We haven't got the resources. And, you know, one could, could uh, debate whether it's, it's whose, whose fault it is, and I don't want to go into that, because, you know, arguably they could redirect services from other services into social care, I'm not going to go into that, but uh, what we're hearing is local authorities saying we need to cut services because we haven't got the money. And so the idea uh, behind this study was to try to understand what the impact in terms of, um, you know, the, the distribution of resources, who's going to benefit from support, social care support um, from the state if we go further and reduce budgets further. And, and, and this, this has already started, you know, has been happening for a while. So um, if you look at, um, this is a very simplistic proxy for need for services. This is basically the, the older population. As um, um, Rafael has very eloquently explained, there are many other factors which will uh, drive demands, you know, prevalence of disability, etc. But given that you know, at, you know, we're making the assumption of at least constant prevalence of, of uh, disability uh, in, the UK, in the UK in the last few years and in the near future. You know, this is probably an okay proxy for, for demand. And the point there is that demand is likely to increase in the future. We reckon about 2% per year. More people knocking at the services, uh, at the door of uh, local um, authorities. And yet, if you look at um, the numbers of people that have been benefited in, uh, from services recently, that's actually started to go down. So this is the number of uh, all the users of community-based services. Uh, and you can see that this is at any point during the year. So that's, uh, that's why it's quite high, over a million people receiving community-based services at any one point during the year. But you see how that's deepening. And the same happens in terms of residential care. So you see that from 2005, the, the numbers of uh, supported residents has been going down. And this is in partly, partly explained by um, an increase in the numbers of people in continuing care, so funded by the NHS in residential care. But this trend is bigger than, than that. It's not fully explained by that. So basically what I'm saying is that on the one hand, demand is going up, and yet services, you know, service provision, numbers of people receiving services is going down. Um, and so if we're going to have further cuts, budget cuts, well, what are the likely uh, consequences of that? And of course, if you want to um, you know, analyze this or you, know, you want to try to model, understand what the implications of uh, cutting further uh, social care services are, you need to first of all have an idea of what the size of those cuts would be. Because you, you know, you might, you've got some local authorities who say that they have to cut it by a fifth, a fifth from one year to the other. So not only do you have you have demand going up, you have unique costs going up, arguably, 
uh, although at the moment they're, they're perhaps not growing as fast as, as they will in the future. Uh, we reckon, for example, that um, we need, you need to stand still in the long run. Our models suggest that you need 3.5% growth in expenditure in real terms. This is to provide the same services to the same type of people. Uh, and yet, you know, you're having services reducing. Um, so, you know, 20% we thought would be too much. So we, uh, we decided on 6.7%, and not because it's a very pretty number, but because that's the number that the IFS reckons um, the level of reduction in Dell expenditure, once you protect items like health and, and education, is the level of reduction in expenditure um, that will be required in order to meet the, um, the, well, to meet the plans from the Treasury in terms of reduction in public expenditure. So this was published in, in their green paper in 2010 by, by IFS. So basically what we're going to think, what we're going to assume, is that in, uh, following in, uh, from 2011-12 and 2012-13, there will be a reduction in 6.7% real terms in expenditure. Of course, as I was saying before, if you stand still, you need to increase expenditure anyway because you know, it, it, it's uh, ever more expensive to provide services. So our, our point of reference will, not be, uh, will be a, a system where um, expenditure goes up and goes up enough to provide the same types of services to the same types of people. Yeah, that's the status quo. That's our point of reference. And we'll have two scenarios. One which is this constraint scenario where expenditure will be reduced by 6.7% over two years, and another scenario which is just the status quo, the unconstrained, the demand-led scenario. So what that means, this is just a graphical representation of that. Um, this is gross expenditure of the 2009-10, the latest figures. This is net expenditure, and we, you know, if things continue the same way, then we will expect ex expenditure to, net expenditure to carry on along this path. But because we are imposing in the, in the constrained scenario a reduction in, in, in expenditure, well, we're going to see a, a shortfall in expenditure of about 17% in 2012-13. So that's in terms of, of quantifying how much we need to reduce, uh, or we're going to assume the system will reduce expenditure by. You still have to decide how we will do that. You know, if you're going to reduce how much you spend, well, what, what's the strategy that would be at, uh, taken up by uh, local authorities? And of course, one could, you know, um, Treasury might be saying, oh, well, you know, 5% uh, efficiency gains is the, the sort of thing that they impose on them on a regular basis. We're not, we're not thinking here about efficiency savings. We're not thinking about uh, increases in copayment, in charges, user charges, um, partly because that's not down to local authorities in residential care at least, that's a unified national system and most of the expenditure is the residential care related. So what we're thinking is about changes in, in the service model, in, in service levels. You still have to think about how they would go about doing that, whether they would um, invest perhaps uh, or reinvest their resources by service type, thinking efficiency wise. You know, somebody was talking about new technologies before and whether there's any evidence. Uh, we don't think, we're really keen, keenly awaiting these new studies that Martin and colleagues are going to uh, publish very soon, but until then we're not thinking in terms of efficiency gains through improvements in technology. Uh, not that they cannot exist, but we, we didn't, you know, uh, model them. And then, uh, but you could also think about whether 
a local authority having to reduce their expenditure could think that it's better to invest in high-need cases because they've got the greatest people with, you know, just keep expenditure on the very, very uh, dis uh, dependent people because they've got the greatest capacity to benefit or that they might want to uh, invest on lower need people because, you know, long-term uh, prevention sort of uh, strategies. Or, you, you know, the equity considerations that uh, Rafael was also mentioning before, you know, is it fairer to provide more for the needier, etc. So all these considerations would be in the mind of a local authority when having to impose these cuts. They would have to think about, you know, how they go about. What, what we um, went for is a strategy where, which basically mimics what's been happening uh, lately, which is that uh, local authorities increase their elig needs eligibility criteria. So they cut from the bottom, as it were. So, you know, you're going to be cutting from the, if you look at the distribution of need in a local authority, just increase your eligibility up to that point at which you've got enough money to cover the rest. Um, we uh, carry out this analysis, we use the dynamic microsimulation model that you know, Rafael's already alluded to. I'm going to be very brief, I don't want to go into any of the details of this. If you want to discuss that uh, later on, I'm very happy to do so. It's a uh, dynamic microsimulation model that only means that we follow people through time, that we follow individuals, um, that uh, we can look at distributional uh, implications. We based it on um, basically pulling uh, 11 waves of the DHPS, uh, DHPS data set. We've got about 30,000 observations. And what we try to do with all this is we get those data, we remix them and calibrate them and reweight them in such a way that what we end up with looks like the current system. Yeah? And, we, uh, and something that is quite important, because it's important in terms of the results we get, is that we try to model the behavior of individuals within the system, and in particular the demand effects. You know, somebody, if uh, I'm told that uh, residential care is free, I probably will make different choices that I'm, I'm told that is 30,000 pounds that I need to pay. And that needs to be uh, reflected in, in the analysis. And we try to do so. However, there's a big caveat here. It's an extremely difficult thing to do, partly because we, we don't know that much about private uh, consumption, private patterns of utilization. It's, uh, data is not good. The data is quite often in the community, for example, it's very difficult to distinguish what would be personal care from, from housework, for example, it's just very difficult to get those data. So it's very difficult to estimate what we call demand functions in order to get that evidence and plug that. So we've done our best, and our demand functions make the model work in such a way that it replicates what's going on in terms of uh, public consumption, uh, uh, private consumption of uh, residential care, uh, and as far as we know, um, community-based services. But just to recap, the, the, the um, objective here is to use our microsimulation model to compare two, two scenarios. One which is constrained, which says, well, you know, you have to lose 6.7% of your net expenditure over two years, against another one which is demand-led. It's just doing the same job it's doing now, and it will just find the money. Yeah? So it's just doing the same as now. And those are the two systems we're comparing, and we're going to compare public and private expenditure, what, what are the implications uh, in, in, in the two, service utilization rates, so not just how much it costs, but who receives services, and outcomes, or, you know, to, uh, in a limited way, because it's difficult to measure uh, and to model outcomes, but you know, I'll show you some, some outcome-related information. So what happens in terms of overall expenditure? These, you'll see that there are 
five years here, and each year has got two columns. The two columns represent the two scenarios. On the left, the unconstrained, uh, the unconstrained scenario. On the right, the constrained scenario. The constraint only applies in the last two years, yeah? two periods. And, so, and then, within each column, you've got three colors. You've got net expenditure, net expenditure, which grows, and then from 2011-12 is lower on the one scenario than the other. This is the 6.7% reduction. Then we've got user charges associated with the, um, sorry. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> um, so th this is net expenditure. This is user charges. So people are in the system, but they pay charges for payments and some top-ups as well. And these are private payers. Okay? You tell us if we need to start running. Um, and what, basically what, what you see is clearly net expenditure is going to go down. That's the objective of the exercise. That's not very surprising. User charges drop, and they drop proportionally faster because it's a feature of, of the current uh, means-tested system that you've got a, a, an accessible income you need to contribute. And so if, if you're taking out people with low packages, because they're the lowest need, they're, the going, they're going to be the ones that are paying the highest con proportional contribution to their packages. So that's not that's surprising. And the, but what is interesting to see as well is that this difference, so the drop in total expenditure, will be smaller than the drop in net public expenditure. Why? Because if the, the state doesn't provide me with anything anymore, I might still use my private resources in order to do so. But I, might, I will not fully compensate for the reduction in, in public expenditure. Yeah? So what happens in terms of, of the number of people who receive public support? With, uh, so these are people who are supported to some extent by local authorities. Well, we, we want to dif differentiate between residential care, and these are here. This is the greenest residential care in the constraint, and just behind the, that green there's a identical line, which is the residential care, numbers of people receiving residential care on the demand-led system. Why does it need change? Why is it identical on the two scenarios? Because these are the most dependent individuals. And so they're the least likely to be affected by this sort of cut. Yeah? So actually, that doesn't change. What happens is that when the, uh, the constraint starts applying, and there's a 6.7 reduction in budget applies, you see a very large, actually, this is 6.7 reduction in net expenditure. And it's leading to you know, a huge drop in the number of people receiving community services. And, you know, uh, and this is because we're, the, the packages of people in the community, in particular those people with the lowest levels of need, are going to be very small. And so you need to get rid of a lot of them in order to save enough to com comply with the new budget constraint. So actually, it leads to two minutes. We'll forget about what it leads to. <laughs> Impact on service users. This is, this, this is the same picture we were looking at just uh, a second ago. These are residential care. Residential care doesn't change, so the, the brown remains the same. But what I wanted to show you as well is that there's going to be a lot of those people that become now private payers will go and use services of their own pocket. They might not use the same amount of services. That, and so the drop in the total drop in number of users is not nearly as much as the drop in the number of supported users. 
We can also look at the, um, you know, the, the impact by different groups in terms of their need and in terms of their wealth. These are, broadly speaking, in, income quintiles. I won't go into the details. But basically, this means that somebody with, everyone comfortable with ADLs, ADLs is uh, act failures with activities of daily living. The more ADLs you've got, the more dependent you are. People with one ADL no longer would have any chance of being supported. 100% of them are basically excluded from the system. About 80% of those people with two ADLs would still, you know, would depart from the system. And a significant chunk of those people with three ADLs. So, you know, it's a lot of people being excluded. There's a bit of a pattern in terms of, of income. Uh, of, this is because of um, differences in the proportions uh, of people living alone between uh, wealth groups. But it's a detail. Once you stratify by living alone, this pattern disappears. Just got two, two more slides. Uh, outcome really is what matters. Is what happens at the end of all this. Is whether, and it's difficult to measure. But one thing we can do is to try to measure the numbers of people who are receiving an adequate package of care. And by adequate, and this is probably wrong, but we assume current levels of state support. And so what we try to quantify is what the impact of um, the budget cuts are on outcomes in terms of the numbers, the, the hours, the shortfall in the levels of hours that people are receiving. So you've got needs, you should be receiving 10 hours, but you're only receiving now eight. Well, that's a shortfall of two hours, yeah? That's what we, and we aggregate all that up. And you can see that as a result of the, the, the demand-led scenario would be this, you know, level of unmet need would remain this big. And you see how by introducing the constraint, unmet need actually increases significantly. Yeah, there's a lot of unmet need because of the reduction in... So just con some conclusions. Caveats, we like our caveats. Um, you know, this is all dependent on some key assumptions that we're making. One, what is the size of, of the cuts? Two, how would local authorities deal with them? What strategies would they use? And then our demand, our assumptions about demand, demand effects. The extent to which different local authorities will be affected by uh, similar cuts would vary a lot because what, you know, there's a huge variability in terms of what local authorities are doing today. Our, part, you know, our results are relevant in terms of a general England sort of picture. Um, yeah. Uh, well, clearly there's, there's a, a big impact in terms of, in particular, the numbers of people supported in the community. Just a small drop in net expenditure of local authorities would lead to a very large reduction in the number of support, people supported in the community. And even if uh, the withdrawal of, of care does lead to an increase in the, the, the amount of private care, that private care does not compensate clearly for uh, the reduction in state expenditure. And just one thing that I haven't mentioned is that clearly other outcomes would be very important. Um, this is gonna ha would have implications in terms of healthcare expenditure, the, the well-being of carers, etc. Thank you very much. Okay, okay comments or questions? Is the conclusion then, with this huge uh, rate of unmet need, that people will either just fade away, or will go to hospital earlier, or have suffer greater ill health? Is, is, does that follow? I think to some extent all those things will, will apply, but um, I'm, I'm surprised really that, um, I, you know, when I see 
this result as I said suggests that local authorities are really sticking to the to, to top band, some authorities are just going for critical, I mean critical um, and that they're still talking about, you know, having to reduce, and I'm not blaming them necessarily, but uh, they're still talking about having to reduce, you know, expenditure. Things like that will happen for sure. Uh, it's difficult to know to what extent. There's a lot of evidence now that um, the more you spend on social care, the um, better the healthcare system outcomes. The other way around as well, by the way. So, you know, clearly a reduction in, in expenditure in, in social care support will lead to things like that happening. Okay, one, two. Well, um, one of the issues uh, is that uh, the, lo the local authorities are actually, and they've been doing this for some time, have been squeezing the providers of care. Now, about 81% of providers are now uh, private and voluntary providers rather than in-house local authority, most of it's private, and they're putting ceilings on how much they can get. And of course the impact of that is that then the wages of, of care workers get squeezed. And looking at your, one of your first graphs, I think it was your first graph, you saw the increasing need, that was the, the levels of need, and there's a complexity of the sort of conditions that people have. These care workers who are not very well uh, paid and not very well trained, are increasingly being asked to carry out duties that would have in the past been the duties of district nurses. So it's not just the sort of constraint, it's going to be very <coughs> poor levels of care as well. I think, I think you're right um, that, on, you're right. On the other hand, local authorities are in a difficult position. And I don't know where the balance lies. I think we're, we've moved too much to basically something which is um, unit cost driven. Let's push down uh, unit cost. But on the other hand, the, the, the lower the unit cost that you can manage to, to uh, get from your providers, the more people you can serve. Uh, the problem in social care is that it's, it's, it's very much of a, an experienced good. And it's difficult to advertise quality. And it's difficult for providers to, to um, compete purely on quality. And, Price is something that is much easier to advertise. And so local authorities perhaps will find it easier to choose you know, between providers in terms of price because quality is something that is difficult to, you know, to, 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 to advertise and to, to compete on. Okay, come on here. Um, the, the Audit Commission has just published a report on uh, managing adult social care budgets. And I wondered in the context of your approach, how useful you found that report in identifying for councillors the full range of measures that they might take to soften the blow. Are, are they in line with your sort of thinking? I, I will find it very useful for them. I haven't looked at it yet, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I mean, we can talk, if you tell me now afterwards what, what it says. Okay, now one, two, three, four questions, okay. Laura. You said that the impacts are varying across local authority systems. Obviously, there's quite a lot of variation anyway. And then I was just thinking about somebody that I interviewed a carer recently. She actually moved a mother from um, West Sussex to East Sussex because she said the support was slightly better in um, East Sussex. And I heard recently that they're talking in West Sussex about only supporting people with critical needs. I don't know if that's going through or not because there's been a court case about that so on, but I just wondered if maybe, you know, one impact might be that people might move more to, if they live, you know, in one local authority and they know that the one next door is getting, you know, giving more care. Yeah. Well, the, the same, 
the same was argued in the context of the free personal care system in, in Scotland. My, Rafael, you might correct me, but my understanding is that there wasn't a huge influx of, of people moving across the border. So people were aware of it and not aware of the yeah. Rates. I mean, um, yeah. My other thought was about, because um, a lot of kind of teams now work together as health and social care, you know, like other people's business health teams and so on. Do you think some of it, some of the cuts might get soaked up by the health, you know, the, the health service because, you know, their budget's being protected and it's just kind of like, you know, um, a political thing to protect health and, well, I don't know what ex to what extent ex explicitly and willingly budgets will be shared in order to to think of the greater good or you know some sort of investment so that I would, but if that doesn't happen um, by default, <laughs> the fact that people will knock at the hospital rather than you know we will. Okay, I'm going to have four questions. Then we'll go. I've got three. I'll have, have you also the general discussion in a moment. So one. Two, there's a third one, I already put a hand up, and then we'll go to my mother piece, so one. Um, so local authorities now require one old people who is seeking social care support to go through a period of enablement uh, before they're assessed for long-term ongoing support. And there's evidence that uh, for some people that then leads to reduce demand or no need for ongoing care or fewer hours. So to what extent did you model in uh, the impact of the enablement in the simulation. Um, we, we didn't. We, when we model uh, the system, we have to simplify it and, and reduce it to a large extent. Um, it's something. It's one of the things we want to do in terms of changing, making assumptions about different care, mo care, care models. But so far, we haven't done much on that. Uh, I know there is an evaluation happening. Uh, Jules, Julian, my uh, co-author, is, is involved in that. Uh, and should be about to come up, I think. Okay, Sean, Helen, then we will go to the mic. So, Sean. Uh, Sean Bull of the PSSI. Just following on from the first question, and perhaps that one. Uh, if, you, if you don't actually deliver care to the lower levels, then it would be correct perhaps to assume that, that, that they were over time, that those people will reach higher levels. So, within, within, your own, within that simulation model, you would expect, I mean, I know it's for two years, but you would expect movements up through it. Which will then not be in effect. And I suppose, following on from that, if you actually look at it in terms of 6.7%, and in fact, what you've got is variation across the country, which I'm guessing you can put in, so that it might be 15% in one area and no percent in another area. And then looking at you know, the area which is getting no percent cuts, they might have lower levels of need, but the high levels of need could be where larger levels of cuts are. Just to fit, this is just bringing me on to the problem then becomes if you start pushing into not just the first levels of need, but right up to two and one and how you cut off and, and what the impact of that is going to be. Hmm. Oh, I think it's, it's, it's a very good point. Um, you would, at the moment we're treating need as exogenous, as not endogenous with respect to services. But clearly if you are left on your own and you are a critical need person, something is going to happen to you uh, sooner rather than later. And so it's something that ideally you would want to, to model. It's a very difficult thing to do. In terms of local variability, the model, um, we do use the, uh, the results of the model in order to um, feed, uh, we reuse the, the, the model in order to provide DH with a formula that can be adapted locally in order to look at 
implications across you know, different parts of it. Okay, hello. Are there any commissioners in the room? <laughs> They're going to be very rude. <laughs> um, it's just in, in, my, in our experience, health and social care commissioners love models and very rarely use them. Who's the study for? The study was, uh, um, well, we have to, I'm very, very grateful to uh, the Department of Health. They've invested a lot of money over many years now um, to help develop our model, Raphael's model. Now, how, how old is it? Uh, 30 or 40 years. <laughs> no, but, you know, for a long time. And, and I know that they use it, uh, the Department of Health uses it. This particular study was commissioned by the by Age UK um, in order to you know to show the implications. An analysis of the current situation rather than for the future. Perhaps. Well, the model can be used in, in both. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Luis. What we're going to do, and ask Mike Murphy from LSE to give us some reflections across the three presentations. Mike's going to be relatively brief, and then we will um, have time for some general discussion again. So. Uh, Thanks very much. The role of a discussant is normally to make witty and destructive comments about the presentations. Unfortunately, I'm not able to do this because there's actually nothing in them that I disagree with. Um, so I'll just make a few sort of general points very quickly to allow the general discussion to uh, expand, if possible, about the three presentations. I mean, they're valuable in that they are oriented towards policy-rated issues. And so what we can identify in them is, is a value added over and above simply looking at, at data. Um, in the first presentation, the question of selection comes up. That's an important point because if you look at hospital use, people who go into hospitals die more quickly than people who don't go into hospitals. So naively, close hospitals would be beneficial to the population. But of course it isn't because there's a selection issue and we, that's trivial to say, of course, hospitals aren't, are a bad thing. The 18th century, that might well have been the case. But trying to actually identify the selection effect is much more difficult in some contexts. We probably don't give it enough attention, I think, whereas you know, without doing it, you are likely to lead to erroneous results. The other thing that we get out of these studies, I think, is perhaps some counterintuitive uh, information in some ways. The fact that what looks like a, well, a, a modest, only one-sixth uh, reduction in expenditure leads to a reduction in more than half the number of people receiving community services you know, uh, in two years, I think, is something which you know, that figure should stick in people's minds and hopefully in the government's mind as well. Um, there's also the whole issue about decision-making, because policy is about making decisions. I mean, from a policymaker's point of view, the past is nice to know, the future is need to know. The unfortunate thing is that we can't know the future with certainty. So we're always in the uh, game of trying to make assumptions about the future. And worse than that, we're making assumptions not about comparing A and B, but we're comparing what would happen if something didn't happen to A, with the counterfactual. If this group of people didn't get services, what would their situation be? So this is inherently model-based, and therefore we have to make assumptions the whole time, and that's not a straightforward uh, thing to do. And it's often not straightforward to actually explain it to, to the wider public. Um, there are issues about um, the unit of analysis. 
It's what is turned out that there is no point in looking at an average person. We have to look at variability, at the, the effects on different groups. We have to look at variability across geographical areas. We look at EU level, at national level, and at, at say, local authority level, and people are affected at very different levels uh, depending on where they are actually located. The institutions matter within the EU, national government and local government are decision makers and what happens is affected by where you are there. You're also affected by your lifetime experiences. When you end up uh, in doing or not doing activities by things like uh, class, education and income, those don't suddenly appear when you age 65. They are products of your lifetime experiences and clearly you have to incorporate that in your analysis. The issue of intergenerational equity is implicit in a number of, of the studies. You know, who wins and who loses out of this at both the family and the sort of generational level. And it's something which you know, is going to become increasingly important as the pinch kicks in. We're also concerned with decision making. There was the old uh, uh, saying that economics is about how people make decisions, sociology is about how they don't have any decisions to make. And I think when you think of that in terms of the individual, I think you know, the, the coalition uh, cabinet may now feel that it's an issue in terms of the NHS they have moved from being economists to sociologists over the last week or so. Decision-making is not a straightforward business, and the constraints inherent in it, I think, have to be recognised, and those that were brought out very forcefully in the presentations. So I'll just finish up by saying, well, so where is the space for change then? You know, are we all economists or sociologists these, these days? And what are the levers that enable us to make the changes to obtain the best outcomes in the situation where the pressures associated with the huge advance, you know, the benefits of doubling life expectancy in 100 years is among kind of mankind's greatest achievements. Can we do something to uh, make optimise the situation in the next century as well? Thank you. Thanks very much, Mike. Um, that was excellent uh, distillation of some key themes running through. Um, we've got about 10 minutes, 12 minutes for um, any final comments. So if, again, if you want to raise general questions, make general comments across the three areas or other areas around ageing and social policy, please feel free. If you have comments or questions for the individual speakers, there's an opportunity again to do that. So over to you. Okay. Yes, please. Um. Can I just take up the very last point on the economists or sociologists? And can I just point to an example of where the two have quite usefully been harnessed locally in Hackney? Because one thing the local authority there has done is to try and uh, build, with the help of an economist commissioned to do it, a model for the prevention metric um, to uh, quantify the cashable savings that could be made by investing in certain kinds of preventive services. That, of course, is against the short-termism that is being forced upon many local authorities regrettably. But it does offer a longer view which shows there's light at the end of the tunnel if you can get the evidence to invest in certain things. And variables in the model were put together by local people, 
say what they felt was important to them in achieving health and well-being and deferring the ravages of older age. So the prevention metric, a blend of sociology, economics, and local expertise and experience is now being used in planning. That's very helpful comment. We haven't talked much about that. I mean, I've got two colleagues I was making eye contact with as you were speaking because we've been looking already at some of the economic arguments for preventive strategies, shall we say, and we are hoping to be starting some work uh, in a couple of months' time looking at the potential for community capacity building, interpreting that term quite broadly, uh, to meet needs and to do so in a way which is economically attractive, shall we say. Um, so I suspect that one or both of my colleagues will be um, beating a path to Hackney very soon to find out more about what you're doing because uh, I think this is its not the only question but it is a very important question and it is one that's been uh, neglected quite a lot. Okay, yes. Um, I, hesitate, I hesitate to make this point in the hallowed halls of the LSC, but none of the discussion um, this afternoon or anywhere is addressing the moral issue. Um, I'd like to frame at that point um, against this statement, uh, which is that the um, first duty of government was said to be the defence of the realm, and people accepted that the government appropriated such resources from the economy um, into the public sector as were necessary to achieve that aim. If you apply the same principle um, to the old, the vulnerable, the ill, the sick, the care that is, that is needed, is there a duty for the people of a country through its government to give priority to the well-being um, of this group of people? Um, raising taxation as may be required for that purpose, much in the same way as we've all accepted over the generations that we want to be defended. Is there a difference in attitude in those countries that are more equal um, in their income and wealth distribution? Has that been looked at? Is that an issue that affects um, the United <coughs> Kingdom, but perhaps not some of the other countries which are held to be more equal? And um, is the about to be published leaked statements of the Archbishop of Canterbury, is that just the beginning of this question, perhaps, is moral issue being addressed? Okay. Um. Happily throw that open to uh, to others of you. I mean, the wonderful questions to leave hanging as we leave the room, but I want people to comment on them. I think uh, the previous government, of course, when they set up their commission, rejected the use of general taxation, um, and that was something that would follow through with the uh, Dilma Commission on the grounds that it would be unfair to the younger generation who would therefore have to bear a very large burden because of the aging population. Plus, of course, the older generation were, had a lot of assets, so there is a question of generational equity involved in that. Other comments? Martin. Um, yeah, in the context of the uh, Council of Europe, we have something uh, which exists as the right to care. The problem is um, the countries which uh, signed this, uh, this treaty uh, are, for instance, not the UK and not most of uh, the Western European, uh, Western European countries. The only countries who signed it are uh, countries like Moldavia, Bulgaria, and yeah, so countries which 
maybe in practice don't uh, live up to this, uh, to this human right, while Western European countries try to uh, organize something like this, but just fear uh, of being brought to court if they fail to deliver these services. So it's not okay. just a moral questions question, but also maybe a question of human rights. That's a good point. Okay, yes? Uh, on the question of uh, Russian on the question of funding, the, the difference between taxation and, and self-funding and bribing and all that, uh, would in the future people will be sheltering their assets if there were compulsion being put on them to actually fund their care for a certain amount of money? Because I know that it is already happening. People are hiding their assets so that it is not taken into consideration when they have got a financial assessment form to fill in when they need care. Now, there's a difference also because continuing health care, which is disputed in a number of cases, they're getting fully funded, whereas people who've got increasing health care need but not total care, not total health care, uh, is disputed by other people. And that is the problem where people will then do Try to hide my assets and whatever. It's happening. I've seen it. Okay. I'm not going to answer. No answer. I'm just going to leave these hanging. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Other comments and questions? Other things that I want to address? Yeah, there's a thing from about uh, my care needs because I've lost my job and because I've tried to get another one that is difficult. So I was wondering whether uh, it were possible to let younger people know that at one stage they would get old so that they start thinking about it and put aside some money. I think one of the things that Raphael was alluding to about the, 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 the absence currently of long-term care insurance policies, I think the difficulty is getting people to think about long-term care needs early enough. Um, you know, we've, we've got pretty good at thinking about pension needs early enough, maybe, um, but certainly not good enough to think about, not thinking about that enough at an early working stage, no. So. Adeline, one and two, yep. So I think that one thing that keeps coming is, is you know, does the state have a moral obligation and we pay our taxes and that those meeting our future costs and, and, you know, which provision do we need to make as individuals? Obviously, in England, we haven't had clarity. We've been in the process of looking at how to reform long-term care for so many years now that it's very difficult to make any financial plan, I'd say because we all expect there will be a reform, right? Um, but uh, I think that as more and more people are living to old ages, we need to accept that long-term care will be a higher percentage of GDP than it's been in the past. And some of that, as a society, we need to agree to fund publicly, some of it maybe privately. But um, if, that in, if, if there really is a limit to how much taxation we want to accept as a society, then we need to look at other ways of, of working it and other maybe partnerships with the private sector, maybe top-up insurance. There may be so many other ways, but 
it is very important to, to look at it in that perspective. And um, it is society and people, when they vote, they choose sort of maybe the level of taxation and how much you want to be met publicly and privately. So that's very important. Okay, I'm going to go with one last comment or question. Back yeah, uh, Richard Gibson from the about planning and yes, my question is with the variation we see in assessment and charging across the country is that ever going to be compatible in its current form if the sort of system really vigils or a plan for their own future care needs it doesn't seem to be compatible I don't know how's the race or Raphael want to um, it doesn't help I mean the, um, in France for example where you've got one of the more Successful uh, in the private insurance market. One of the features that people keep quoting in terms of um, an enabling factor is the fact that um, you know, you know, that they use the same eligibility criteria as it is called, and therefore you can you can think of your solution as adding on to the, which is the, the point I think that Alina was making. I think in terms of localism, though, I mean, sometimes there's a, there's a risk that you can throw the baby with the bathwater. Um, it's true that there's a, a lot of heterogeneity, and I think there's too much heterogeneity. I don't think it can be rationally argued. On the other hand, I mean, I don't know, I'd be very interested in your view on this, given that you're from BWT, but <coughs> if you take a system like AA, which is you know, almost the, the, the polar opposite, it's much more standardized, and still means that in London you're going to get 58 pounds, and in the rural area you're going to get 58 pounds. So you, know, you need to have enough flexibility, it seems to me, in the system to cope with local circumstances. But then the moment you do, do that, one, it gets more complicated and, and people it become confused. So it's very tricky. Okay, I mean, uh, given that you were here on a personal capacity, you don't have to answer that question, so that's okay. So, so thank you very much. I'm going to, the, the, the main duty of a chair is to finish on time, and we've got uh, 26 seconds, I think, to, to wrap up. Let me just say, first of all, thanks very much indeed to three excellent speakers and an excellent discussant who offered us a lot of good information in perfect timing. Um, thank you for some excellent discussion of very, very good questions. Lots of them were just leaving hanging, but very, very helpful. Uh, thank you to all of you for coming along. And although they're never in the room, and I want to thank them, thanks to Champa Heidbrink and Angie Mehta, who organized this event. Um, there should be uh, tea and uh, non-mean-tested non biscuits outside. Um, so please uh, continue the discussion out there. Thank you very much.